The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Sadok Dalai, the, the chairman of this commission, came out and said, this is not the version we wrote, this is not the version we handed to Saeed, and this version has the potential to lead Tunisia down a path of autocracy. And again, this is a guy who is in Saeed's pocket, is very much a Saeed loyalist. So the fact that he would come out and so harshly criticize the version that Saeed put forward just tells you how flawed this process was. Saeed then, in the even stranger turn of events, they discovered there were multiple errors, whether they were just typos or actual changes Saeed wanted to put in. It's not clear, but about a week after the Constitution was reported into the Gazette, they came out and fixed it with some, some new changes. That led to this referendum process where you had most of the people who opposed Saeed ended up boycotting the process entirely, believing that even just going to vote would legitimize something that they felt was entirely illegitimate. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for August 11th, 2022. The country of Tunisia is in the midst of a slow-motion political crisis. The country's populist president has crafted a new constitution that gives him broad, unchecked powers and secured its approval by referendum, albeit a referendum in which most Tunisians did not participate. What's not clear is whether other factions will acquiesce to his exceptional actions, and whether those actions will prove to be the antidote for corruption that he has promised, or the nail in the coffin for what had been the Arab Spring's last surviving democracy. To discuss these developments and what they might mean, I sat down with two Tunisia experts, Sarah Yerkes, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace's Middle East program, and Sharon Grewal, an assistant professor of government at the College of William & Mary and a non-resident fellow at the Center for Middle East Policy here at the Brookings Institution. We discuss where the new constitution came from, what it may mean in practice, and how it will impact Tunisia and the broader region's future. It's the Lawfare Podcast for August 11th, Tunisia's New Constitution. Sarah, this isn't the first time we've had you on the podcast to talk about Tunisia's difficult political evolution over the last few years. So let me turn to you first to get us caught up a little bit, specifically for those listeners who might not have been tracking the story or heard our prior conversations. Give us a little bit about what has happened since the Arab Spring, since 2011, when Tunisia really was the beginning of this period of immense hope of towards democratic transition and was the one country to kind of come out of that period as a functioning democracy, or at least so it seemed for a very long time. Give us a little bit of the trajectory from that period up until today. What's been happening in Tunisia's political evolution that leads us to the set of developments that have come about in the last few weeks that we're going to be talking about? 
Over the past decade, Tunisia has gone through a tremendous amount of political change, some of it positive, some of it negative. They've really accomplished a lot in the political sphere from developing a constitution that was a three-year process, really a very free and liberal progressive constitution, um, multiple elections, both national elections, local elections. But what they sort of failed to do was both consolidate the democratic process and progress, and they really didn't kind of implement a lot of the constitution. And they also didn't really address the economic challenges that were one of the main drivers that brought about the revolution in the first place. So in 2019, when they had their latest presidential elections, they brought in a new president, Kais Saeed, who was a political outsider. He sort of represented the same wave of kind of populist outsider leaders that we saw come into power across the world during that time. And what Kaisai did is he really kind of divided the country or rather exacerbated existing divides. And when he did that, you know, he kind of brought to the fore a lot of the problems of the revolution that were never addressed. He kind of riled up the people in a way that made them sort of wanting some change. You add to that the pandemic that hit the country as it hit the rest of the world, but really hurt the economy, exacerbated the existing economic problems. You had people that were very, very angry and frustrated with a lack of political progress they they saw from the parliament, the lack of um, addressing corruption that had been rampant both before and after the revolution. And Kais Said was able to capitalize on all of that public anger and initiate a self-coup just a little bit over a year ago, where he ended up consolidating power into his own hands and culminated in writing his own constitution that he was able to push through in a referendum on July 25th of this year. So a lot of this history of this most recent period centers around this individual that you've already mentioned, Kais Saeed, um, who's come in and played this seminal role. Sharon, tell us a little bit about who this man is, where he comes from, and, and how he was able to put himself in a position to implement such dramatic changes. So Kais Syed is a constitutional law professor who really came to fame while Tunisia was writing the previous constitution of 2014. Uh, And he was on TV criticizing uh, the drafting of that constitution, offering his own uh, advice for how you would create a constitution. And he did it in a very monotone fashion that people started calling him Robocop, that he would be very intellectual, uh, speaking in uh, formal Arabic. And so he gained this reputation of being, you know, a clean, honest, intellectual professor who had no political background. He didn't have any political party when he ran uh, in 2019. And to this day, he doesn't have a political party. And that is part of his appeal. People think he is not tainted by the politics of the last 10 years. And so voted for him in 2019 in this landslide election in the hope that he would be the one to clean up the system. He's the one we can trust uh, to vote him into office to uh, root out the corruption of the last 10 years. That has, according to this narrative, the reason why the economy is still struggling 10 years later. And so now he finds himself in the presidency, but in 2019, 2020, 
he found that the presidency didn't have much power, that at the end of the day, the system that was created in 2014 was one in which the president had to share power with a prime minister that was chosen by parliament. And so at the end of the day, everybody had to agree to get anything done. And what Tunisians saw was that they couldn't find agreement, especially in 2020, 2021. And so that is the context, uh, as Sarah rightly noted, that led to his power grab last year on July 25th, when he dismissed the prime minister, froze the parliament and said, I'm going to rule by decree. And so now he has this new constitution that creates a hyper presidential system where he has all the power, but it remains to be seen what he will do with it, right? The mandate that he has is to clean up the system. And for a year, he's had all the power. He even had all of the corruption files because he seized the anti-corruption authority, an independent institution that had been created post-revolution. He has all the corruption files on all of the political parties and bureaucrats, but nothing much has materialized one year later. And so he seems to be facing some resistance, perhaps, in the judiciary that is preventing uh, his war on corruption. But at this point, he has all the power and uh, we'll see where it's headed. So you mentioned that he doesn't really have much of a political party, a traditional political apparatus, but he clearly has a support base somewhere. Where are his supporters based and, and how does that overlay with the other institutions in the government? If it's not that he has major political parties behind him, does he have the military behind him, police forces, certain governance, certain parts of the country, where is his his support base and what levers of power are they exercising? His support base is still fairly cross-sectional. He has still 2.5 million Tunisians who came out to vote in support of his constitution, and they seem to be uh, across all governorates in Tunisia. Originally used to be a very youth base of support. Today seems a little bit older based on the exit poll. But for the most part, he's still appealing to the same constituency, which are people frustrated with the last 10 years because it wasn't delivering economically. uh, And they're hoping that Syed will be the one to revitalize the country and get the economy back on track. Other than that popular support, which I want to underscore is unorganized, there is no political party to this day that is organizing his supporters, you have a number of smaller parties. Uh, the July 25th movement, among others that have popped up to try to capture some of these support bases. You also have uh, various local level social movements, some of which uh, are are trying to ally themselves with the president, but nothing yet that he has initiated to organize his popular support. But beyond the population, he does seem to enjoy some support from the various state institutions. Uh, The military, for instance, uh, obeyed his order in the power grab to close the parliament, the police as well. Uh, You have seen uh, military trials, for instance, of civilians that are criticizing the president or criticizing the police and military. So he does seem to enjoy, in large part, the, the support of the major state institutions as well. I just wanted to note on top of that, that while we have seen continuously sort of surprisingly high numbers of supporters of Qaysaid, I would say that most of the people, or, or a good chunk of the people at least, are not necessarily loyal to him. They want change. They want someone to go in and sort of shake up the system. They're very unhappy with the performance of the parliament. 
But I don't think that they actually really care who does that. I don't think that, you know, if it was a different person, if it was a different political actor, I still think they would be supporting that actor. And this is sort of the drain the swamp mentality that we've seen in the United States, for example, where people are just frustrated with the traditional political class. And they see Saeed as someone who's come in and shaken things up and is willing to sort of take the reins and do something compared to the sort of paralyzed politics that they've seen before. The other base of his support, though, is he's really managed to drive this wedge between the folks who support Anahda, the Islamist party, and those who don't. And there's always been this kind of strain in Tunisian politics between, it's not a secular Islamist divide, it's, a, it's much more nuanced than that. But the people who, he's he's vehemently anti-Nahda, and he's managed to win the support of some, even some people who, you know, would probably call themselves revolutionaries, but who are very much anti-Nahda. And so he's managed to keep these people who are very much pro-democracy supporting him because they are just glad that he's kind of put the nail in the coffin of Anahda at this point. Well, Sarah, let's dig a little deeper on that uh, and talk about Anahda, because in a lot of ways, that is the story that I think for a lot of people was one of the defining stories of Tunisia for a lot of the last 10 years. The fact that you had a major pro-democracy Islamic party emerge, bringing in elements of, you know, different types of political Islamic thinking, blending it with democratic principles under a charismatic leader. Uh, how have Anatta's fates kind of flowed with President Saeed? How have they interacted? And, and, and how have we seen this kind of turn against them towards this more controversial figure among even some self-proclaimed revolutionaries? I think, first of all, it's a little bit strange the way that Said has been so antagonistic towards Anahda. If you look at sort of the values of the party and Kai Said's own values, they actually have a lot of overlap and a lot in common. For example, if you look at the constitution that Said pushed through just recently, you know, they have gone farther than Anahda ever did in sort of drawing a connection between the role of religion and the state. On the other hand, as soon as Said came into power, so I should say Anahda was the party with the largest number of seats in parliament in 2019. They were not um, the majority party. They had actually just about a quarter of the seats. But because of the fact that uh, Anahda was the, the kind of, quote, ruling party, they held the speaker of parliament position, you right away saw this real antagonism between Said and Anahda, and particularly Anahda's leader, Rashid Khanoushi, who was the Speaker of the Parliament. And since 2019, up until the self-coup in 2021, they've just been, you know, at odds with each other. And Said actually ended up firing his Prime Minister, Hisham Mashishi, who was his hand-picked Prime Minister, someone he, you know, was supposed to be a loyalist to him because Mashishi got too close to Anahda. So you've seen this very, again, sort of odd rivalry between two figures and two parties who actually have quite a bit in common, but that's been a way he's been able to drive this wedge and, and get a lot of Tunisians to support him because they are frankly sick of Anahda. Anahda has been the one constant, the one party that has had a good deal of power since the revolution. And if I can just add something to, to Sarah's point, earlier she mentioned that this polarization, uh, pro-Nasa, anti-Nasa, doesn't quite map on to a secular Islamist uh, cleavage. And I, and I just want to underscore that because what we've seen in the last year is that people, a good swath of Tunisians supported the coup thinking it would be the end of Anasa, that we can kick them out of parliament, maybe even dissolve them as a party. 
And then they wake up to see Kais Saeed's new constitution where it says Tunisia is part of the Islamic Ummah and should work towards advancing the objectives of Islam. And for some of them, they came up and realized, hey, wait, we didn't sign up for this either. Uh, and so you've seen that flank of his supporters start to have some doubts today. But then you've seen another flank of these same, we might call them progressive secularists, who are saying, actually, wait, this is fine. We can justify this. What he means by objectives of Islam are actually a very modern liberal interpretation. Uh, and that, I think, gets at Sarah's point that this is not really an ideological hate for Anasa. It's not about we oppose Islamism because uh, they're defending what Kais Syed is doing in this constitution. It really is about what we might call affective polarization from the U.S. context as opposed to ideological polarization. They hate Anasa for their identity uh, more so than for their ideology. And that is, I think, what's driving the support for Kais Syed uh, and the move now that he's taking against Ganushi, for instance, putting him on trial for accusations that Anasa had a hand in uh, the assassinations in 2013, other accusations, for instance, that they sent foreign fighters to, to Syria. These are the types of accusations that drive the, the discontent and hate towards Anasa, more so, I think, than the ideology that, uh, that they have. Fascinating. Let's go back to this latest development of this new constitution that's come out, because before we get into the substance of that constitution, I want to talk a little bit about the process, because we haven't seen, this isn't the first time we've seen a constitution writing process or a new constitution in the Middle East, far from it. It's one of several we've seen over the last 10 or so years since the Arab Spring. An important element of it isn't always just the substance of it, but also the process that arrives at the Constitution. It's the process that's supposed to provide popular legitimacy, public buy-in, or at least buy-in from different political groups that gives a Constitution, you know, the salience and the kind of political sticking power, uh, at least in theory, uh, not always in practice. Sarah, tell us a little bit about the process that's gone into this Constitution writing process, which has happened on a very, very fast scale. Because uh, there's been a lot of interesting elements, by my understanding, in addition to the referendum we just saw a couple weeks ago, in terms of mechanisms, even using the internet for types of public consultation, uh, but then also serious doubts about how seriously those are being engaged with by the public. What sort of process have we seen actually behind this constitution writing exercise? Sure. So the constitution writing process was flawed from the beginning. And as Sean mentioned, you know, writing a new constitution or the constitution process, this is Kaisaid's thing. He's a constitutional law professor. So he knows about constitutions. He knows what the process should be. He knows how to do this the right way. He did not choose to do this the right or the legitimate way. Uh, you know, in the 2014 constitution, there is a process to amend it as there is in any democratic constitution. He didn't follow that from day one. Instead, the path he chose was pretty much the path he's chosen for nearly a year, which is to rule by decree, to kind of ram through his ideas and not really rely on much um, consultation from advisors and really not rely on much consultation from the public. And with the Constitution itself, the way that he tried to frame this, mostly to appease the international community who was calling on him to have an inclusive and consultative process, is he developed this online consultation system that went from January through March of 2022 
where Tunisians could go online, they could answer some different questions about different issues. And that's how he decided he was going to determine people's views on various elements that would go into this constitution. Now, first of all, this was entirely online. A good chunk of Tunisians do not have internet access. There were lots of issues with transparency in this process. You needed to put in your national ID number in order to fill this out. And he already was kind of rounding up people that opposed him and engaging in arrests and travel bans. So a lot of people were afraid to go on and say anything negative. But more than that, people just didn't understand the process and didn't participate. You had less than 7% of Tunisians participate in this online process that's supposed to be the backbone of their new constitution. Instead, Saeed had a handpicked committee, again, whose members were not entirely transparent, to draft a new constitution. The head of that commission, Sadok Belaid, who was a Saeed loyalist, a, an old um, colleague of Saeed, his mentor at one point, he was in charge of this committee. They handed Saeed a draft of a constitution. And then Saeed published the draft of the constitution so that Tunisians could see it and it would become official in the official gazette. And that version was not the version that that Said's own commission had written. So already you start to have irregularities. And in a really odd turn of events, Sadok Belay, the, the chairman of this commission, came out and said, this is not the version we wrote. This is not the version we handed to Said. And this version has the potential to lead Tunisia down a path of autocracy. And again, this is a guy who is in Said's pocket, is very much a Said loyalist. So the fact that he would come out and so harshly criticize the version that Saeed put forward just tells you how flawed this process was. Saeed then, in the even stranger turn of events, they discovered there were multiple errors, whether they were just typos or actual changes Saeed wanted to put in. It's not clear, but about a week after the Constitution was reported into the Gazette, they came out and fixed it with some, some new changes. And some of them were substantive changes. It wasn't entirely grammatical changes. That led to this referendum process where you had most of the people who opposed Saeed, civil society groups, political parties, ended up boycotting the process entirely, believing that even just going to vote would legitimize something that they felt was entirely illegitimate. And so you had just about 30% of, of Tunisians show up to vote on this constitution. So again, from start to finish, the whole process was not anything that you could really consider legitimate. It was did not at all follow the process that was laid out in the 2014 constitution that the Tunisians themselves had contributed to and had voted on and, and had decided that was going to be their constitution. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So from this pretty fast-tracked 
somewhat questionable, at least from a transparency perspective, if not from a substantive perspective process, we now have this new constitutional text, or at least outline uh, of a new constitutional system. Sean, walk us through it a little bit. Tell us, what are the big departures from the 2014 Constitution? What are the big departures in terms of how the government works that are most alarming or potentially most promising, depending on on how one looks at it? What makes this so different from the way that Tunisia has been operating under its prior constitution? The biggest shift is in the political system itself. It's moving from this semi-presidential system, a divided system where the president, parliament, and prime minister all had to agree to get anything done. It's moving now to a hyper-presidential system. Uh, So not just a presidential system like in the US, but a hyper-presidential system where there are literally no checks on the president. Parliament and the judiciary cannot impeach the president. Uh, That has been removed from the constitution. Likewise, parliament and the judiciary can provide no check if the president declares a state of emergency and assumes exceptional powers. It used to be that parliament and the judiciary could end that state of emergency. That's also been removed. So there are literally no checks on the president in this new constitution. And for his supporters, that's why they like it, uh, because they think he's the clean president. Why would we want the corrupt judges and parliamentarians to have a check on him? But that's also worrying some Tunisians who are waking up to to realize that, hey, he's not actually revitalizing democracy. He's returning us back to a strong uh, presidential dictatorship. The second major change in this constitution is uh, what we alluded to earlier, the religious element of it, saying that Tunisia is part of the Islamic Ummah and that the state should work towards the objectives of Islam. That likewise has scared away some of his supporters thinking that this is might create uh, a theocracy down the road. And then the third change I would highlight, uh, which hasn't gotten too much press, especially uh, in the international media, is a a small change to the preamble that I think is actually quite significant, which says that the people of Tunisia will not enter into any foreign alliances, uh, which has, I think, some major implications for the nature of the U.S.-Tunisia relationship uh, with the West more generally. This new president, uh, Kais Fayed, part of his appeal is that he is an Arab nationalist, one who will defend the sovereignty uh, of the Arab world, but also the sovereignty of Tunisia in particular. Uh, And he has throughout the past year, but even before, indicated that uh, he is not so eager to deepen ties with the West. For instance, he is uh, much more comfortable, he said in his electoral campaign, that he would have his first uh, international trips to Algeria and Libya, not to the West. Uh, And I think this new clause in the constitution about how uh, Tunisia won't enter into foreign alliances is scaring some U.S. policymakers as well into thinking that even if all we care about are our security and strategic interests, that Kais Syed might not be the best bet for them moving forward. And I think that uh, helps to explain why uh, post-referendum, once this constitution got passed, we've seen this flurry of strong statements from Secretary of State Blinken, from the as-to-be-confirmed uh, ambassador-designate Joey Hood, from now Secretary of Defense yesterday, Lloyd Austin, all criticizing uh, the referendum, the constitution, and the path that Tunisia has been on uh, over the past year. 
wanted to add one other important change, which is that in the previous constitution, there was an entire chapter on decentralization. And this idea of regional inequality, that some of the regions of Tunisia, the South and the interior, had been intentionally held back by the prior governments, was a big driver of the revolution. And the Tunisians took took this very seriously and really focused on an idea of positive discrimination, a way to sort of lift up these regions that had been held back, that had worse infrastructure, that didn't receive the same amount of funding as, as other regions, and were really suffering economically to a much larger extent than the coastal regions. And interestingly, in the draft of the constitution that the commission put forward, they still had decentralization in there, but in Kai Said's version that he released to the public, he took out the entire chapter on decentralization. And just to point out that he has a sort of odd view of local government. He, on the one hand, is very, very interested in local government, and some have compared him to Gaddafi, for instance. Um, he has this idea of a hyper-local government with a very, very strong presidency. And so the other thing that's been introduced into this constitution is a second chamber of parliament, the Council of Regions. We don't really know what this is going to look like yet. They have to write another law, an electoral law, um, and sort of flesh out what this body is going to look like. But the idea is that the, there will be a second body of parliament with people who are selected from local government that are not necessarily voted on by the people. And again, this real shift away from decentralization. He also got rid of the minister of local affairs, when again, this is one of the issues that really drove the revolution in the first place, is a bit strange for someone who's trying to represent the people and sort of correct the, the revolution that he thinks went off course. So Sharon, let me, let me turn back to you. Tell us a little bit about where this goes from here. We have this constitution, but there's still, you know, debate ongoing about Zayed's broader agenda. Uh, a lot of questions about what the political structure of the system is going to be going forward. Of course, there are still major polls, uh, major centers of opposition and resistance in political parties elsewhere in the country. You know, what are the steps coming forward, moving forward in implementing this new constitution? Where are the major centers of resistance, if any? that have popped up and and what should we we be expecting kind of on the domestic Tunisian horizon in the weeks and months to come? So one of the centers of resistance and the prime one that we're seeing fighting at the moment is the judiciary, where Kais Syed over the past year has tried to exert control over the judiciary, which had formerly been independent and strongly independent. Uh, He, back in the spring, dismissed the Supreme Judicial Council uh, and replaced it with one that he appointed. And then in June, seemingly out of frustration that the judiciary was not moving quickly enough in the corruption cases, he purged uh, 57 judges. Uh, The judges then united in a strike against him, which went on for a month. Hence, in the new constitution, he has removed judges' right to strike as well. Uh, This week, we've now seen an administrative court say that those 57 purge judges, most of them need to be reinstated, 47 of them, because they were innocent of any wrongdoing. Uh, And so this is one battle to watch moving forward, is that he doesn't quite uh, enjoy the support of all state institutions. The judiciary in particular is being a thorn in his side. The second axis of resistance are the political parties, uh, which have been thoroughly excluded from this whole process, starting with the coup on July 25th, 
were not consulted at all in the drafting of the Constitution and likely will not be consulted at all in the drafting of the electoral law uh, for the upcoming parliamentary elections. And so because they're not going to be included, likely not to be included, they are most likely going to boycott the December parliamentary elections, just like they boycotted this July constitutional referendum. Uh, and so that's the second access to watch is what are the political parties going to do? At this moment, they are all opposed to Kaisayed, all the major political parties, but they're divided amongst themselves. So you see one group of the National Salvation Front, which is led by uh, Anasta as well as secular figures work, willing to work with them. You have another group of secular uh, left-leaning parties. Uh, then you have the Free Historian Party also opposed, but not uniting into one. So even when they hold protests against Kaisayed, they're competing protests on different days. If they united moving forward, Word, that would be a strong sign they could leverage a massive protest against the president. But the, the, the pro-NAFTA, anti-NAFTA polarization, that is part of it, keeping them divided. Likewise, the pro-revolution, anti-revolution is keeping them divided vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Free Historian Party. And so there's still divisions within the opposition parties that are preventing them from uniting. Yes, just to add to that, in a very similar vein, we're seeing that the civil society groups themselves are quite divided. Some of them are in um, are working with some of the political parties and are part of some of these coalitions. But I think another axis to watch is what civil society does. They haven't really decided what their next step is going to be. The groups who boycotted the referendum are, you know, they they expected the referendum would pass. But similar to how Sean was describing, the political parties they haven't been able to come together and unite. And as Sean mentioned, in order to really see some sort of massive public protest, some sort of real show of force, you would need the, the civil society groups and the political parties to come together to get over their internal differences the way that they did during the revolution for at least a brief moment to try to kind of make their voices heard. And just to mention too that you know after the referendum process, a couple of different civil society groups and, and one political party did file appeals against the referendum process, and those appeals were recently rejected. So they are we do see them using some sort of legal tools. They've used protests. We've seen growing numbers of protests, growing sizes of protests against Said. But we don't know what that next step is going to look like. We also don't know what Saeed's next step is going to be vis-a-vis -vis civil society. There was a leaked draft NGO law that came out several months ago that if that were to be enacted would really hamper civil society's efforts, make it much more difficult for them to accept foreign funding, make it very difficult for them to register and for them to carry out some of their activities. We don't know if that law is even on the table at this point. But just to say that we have seen Saeed push back against civil society in an increasingly strong way, as well as against the media. And so there's a lot of these different actors that so far have you know, not been able to kind of unite and not been able to really show their, their full force of their membership that might be sort of planning their next step and trying to figure out what they're going to do in order to push back against Saeed. And I think it's important to add that neither side secured a clear victory on July 25th at the constitutional referendum. The constitution passed, yes, with 95%, uh, but only with 30% turnout. So that suggests that Kai Syed is down to a minority of supporters who are uh, willing to take an active step such as voting in an election for him. Likewise, what some of the exit polls released uh, immediately after suggested was that 
those who were actively boycotting the elections were almost the same size uh, as those who went, came out to support the Constitution. So the supporters and the opponents of the president are almost equally equally sized today. Uh, and that suggests, therefore, that because neither side came away with a clear victory on July 25th, that moving forward, uh, the, the stage is set for a continued instability and battle moving forward as they try to uh, oppose one another and appeal really to uh, the population for support. So we talked about resistance inside Tunisia, but what about outside of Tunisia, Sarah? How have we seen Tunisia's neighbors, other countries in the region react to these developments and the other major powers that have a bearing on Tunisia's foreign policy, at least the United States being a a prominent one. We've already heard about some negative reactions there, but also the European Union with which, of course, Tunisia has close trading relationships and political history. How is the international community responding to these sorts of endeavors and how are those responses themselves echoing within Tunisia? So in Tunisia's neighborhood, Algeria has certainly been the most supportive, really sort of globally, of Kaysaid's efforts. As Sean mentioned, Kaysaid visited Algeria as his first um, official trip when he became president, and he's gotten very close to the Algerian leadership. Algeria has been going through its own sort of upheaval, its own massive protest movement over the past couple of years. It's died down quite a bit recently, but uh, the Algerian government, President Saboun and others, are, are very much concerned and watching what happens in Tunisia and are very happy to see democracy put on hold in Tunisia. We've seen Algeria give some small amounts of financial support to Tunisia as well. Um, In the West, the United States and Europe initially were sort of in a sort of wait and see posture and didn't, they were critical of what Saeed was doing a year ago, um, but weren't sort of too harsh. Once Saeed froze the constitution, kept marching forward with his anti-democratic moves, and it became clear what he was doing, you started to see much stronger statements from the United States and from the European Union, as well as other um, European member states. Now they've kind of divided. The United States has been the most vocally pushing back against uh, the autocratic moves of Kaysaid. They've made it very clear. They, the president's budget this year put forward 50% cuts to economic and military aid explicitly as a punishment for Saeed's autocratic moves. But the European Union has continued to let money flow, and that is largely due to their own domestic concerns over migration. Now, they are divided amongst themselves. Germany has been a little bit um, more on the side of the U.S., whereas you've seen France and others who are really, you know, have the migration issue at the top of their agenda and are very concerned about instability in Tunisia and are okay with what Saeed's doing. So while you've seen some sort of tepid EU statements, you haven't seen any sort of real teeth to those statements from the United States or from Europe. You have not seen actually any real punishment yet or any sort of, you know, real conditionality put on anything, any of the money that's flowing, we'll see what happens with Congress if the United States Congress ends up agreeing with the president and cutting that assistance, and that will send a big signal to Saeed. But at the same time, so far, it's largely been statements, um, public statements, but also private calls, visits by U.S. officials and European officials that haven't done a lot or really anything to sway Saeed at this point. He's just kind of shoved past them and kept marching forward with his plan. What's also been interesting to watch is who hasn't 
spoken up uh, in support of Kaisaid. I think many of us expected, having seen Egypt's coup when Sisi came to power, that the Gulf states, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, uh, would jump on board and, and you know, fund Kaisaid and provide a bunch of aid. That has not materialized. Saudi Arabia gave a little bit, uh, but it's really been peanuts, despite uh, what uh, Kaisaid and what Tunisia need moving forward. Likewise, Russia and China have been uh, fairly silent, not coming openly to support Kais Saied. And so he is left really, as, as Sarah noted, with Algeria as his really only ally moving forward, France to some extent. But at this point, in some ways, Sarah made a comparison earlier to Gaddafi in terms of his uh, political system he wants to create. It's almost a comparison to Gaddafi too internationally in the sense of not really having many international supporters, even among countries that you would think ideologically would be supporting his project, trying to create a dictatorship, repress Anasda. Those countries likewise, uh, it's been surprising to see, have not come out in support of him, suggesting that they might also have some concerns themselves about this president and whether he can really create a stable dictatorship moving forward. And I think also a recognition that uh, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Russia, China all have some overextension on their part already uh, and are not ready to, to invest heavily in support of Kais Saied. Just to add to that, I think that Sharon makes a lot of really important points, but it's also not for lack of trying that Said has really courted Egypt and Saudi Arabia in particular. He's had lots of engagement with the Saudis and explicitly asked for support, asked for money from the Saudis, from the Emiratis, and that support has not materialized. So it's not that he's sort of thinks he can live without them. He's tried. They just don't think Tunisia is a worthy investment at this point. So we're almost out of time, but before we and our conversation about this topic, I want to put uh, you all in the position of kind of looking forward. What is it we should be expecting from Tunisia in the months and years ahead? And what steps, in your view, need to be taken, whether by actors domestically or by outside actors, United States government, other governments, to try and put Tunisia or support Tunisia in a way that can produce a more positive outcome? Um, Obviously, Tunisia has systematic in many ways economic challenges that are going to persist regardless of the political system uh, among other challenges but you know are there steps that can be taken to help put it on a better political or other basis to yield some of these results that Tunisian people at least seem to very much be wanting which is improvement in their quality of life and and more stability in government Sarah I'll start with you First of all, from the U.S. perspective, I I mean, I think what we should expect to see is Saeed just continue down his path. I don't think at this point that there is much that is going to change his mind. That doesn't mean we shouldn't continue to try, but I think we would be naive to expect that the kind of statements we've been making and even cutting him off financially, I don't think that's going to change him. Now, where we can be helpful, I think, is supporting the democratic actors, the pro-democracy actors, including civil society, the media, the political actors that are interested in protecting democracy and reinvigorating Tunisian democracy. The U.S.-Tunisia relationship is largely based on shared values, on the idea of Tunisia being a democracy. Now that it's no longer a democracy, I think it is time for us to cut off Kais Said. I don't think that his government should be receiving funding from the United States. 
That doesn't mean we should cut off Tunisia. I think we should keep our assistance to Tunisia at the same levels it's been, but that money should be going to people who actively support democracy. The other thing that I think is important is that as we've seen from the Arab Spring writ large, the argument that autocrats bring about stability is just wrong. And I think it's you know time to make th- this clear to the Europeans and to others who think that just allowing Saeed to move forward is going to keep Tunisia stable. That's not a, an accurate argument. Stability and autocracy do not come hand in hand. Democracy is much more likely to bring about stability. And Tunisia's economic improvement is such an important factor in all of this. And so I think you know for the European Union, for the European countries, for the United States, to continue to figure out ways to support Tunisia's economic development, that will help bring about stability, that will help bring about the sort of dignity, the prosperity that Tunisians were seeking back in 2010, 2011, and continue to seek today and have not yet seen. That's the kind of thing that's gonna keep Tunisia stable in the long term. Yeah, Uh, for me as well, the the key thing to watch uh, moving forward is the economy. That is ultimately going to make or break Kais Saeed's rule. If the economy improves, uh, and he's able to get some big wins on corruption, and that really starts, that improves the economy as his narrative claims it will, then you're going to see him moving forward, continue to enjoy this popular support and be able to consolidate control. If, on the other hand, the economy worsens and he has to impose austerity measures in order to get an IMF loan, that is very likely to spark bread riots and other instability in response. Uh, And that can be really detrimental to his rule. That is not necessarily a good thing for the opposition either. I think if there were to be another mass uprising in Tunisia, it's going to be in rejection of both Kaisayed and the opposition parties. But that is something to watch moving forward in terms of uh, whether he's actually able to consolidate power. Uh, And in terms of what can democratic countries do uh, in Tunisia to try to help support democracy there. I disagree a bit with Sarah in that I think the international statements that the US, the EU, the Venice Commission, for instance, that they have put out when the Venice Commission, for instance, said that the constitutional referendum, the drafting process didn't meet international standards, uh, was illegitimate, that really emboldened the opposition figures especially. I spoke with uh, many of the party leaders a couple weeks ago, uh, and each of them singled that Venice Commission statement out as something that uh, emboldened them to take a stronger stance and that they noticed Tunisians as well uh, started to shift their opinions about Kaisaid. So I think it does matter when when the West speaks up for democratic values and human rights. And that is something I think should continue moving forward. With regards to U.S. programs in terms of aid, our security aid in particular to the, to the military and police, it seems that the U.S. is going to reduce some of it next year, uh, but continue others. And I think that does offer a fine balancing of our security interests on the one hand and maintaining that relationship, but still signaling here that uh, the path that Tunisia is on, this consolidation of dictatorship is not one that we want to be supportive of and, and associated with moving forward. But I think what the U.S. also needs to do with those security programs in particular is to work even further on professionalizing these forces, the security forces and the military. In the trainings themselves, the part of professionalism that even the military does not have 
they obey orders, they are subservient to civilian control, all of that is there. But the other part of professionalism, that you refuse an order that is unconstitutional or that is illegal, uh, that you shouldn't be, for instance, closing the parliament when the constitution clearly says parliament needs to be in a continuous session, that element of professionalism is, I think, something the U.S. should be emphasizing in its cooperation program. Can I just clarify? I just wanted to add, I do I actually, I agree with Sharon, and I think I misspoke a little bit. I do think the United States should and Europe should continue to speak out. And I do think the statements matter for the opposition, for civil society. And I think it is really important that it is clear to those actors that the international community continues to support them and continues to support democracy. I just don't think that those statements, I don't think we should expect those statements to change Saeed's behavior, but I absolutely do think we should continue those statements. I just don't think they're sufficient. And I think, you know, if we look at the most recent U.S. statement or the the statement by Secretary Blinken that came out right after the Constitution, the constitutional referendum, clearly Saeed is paying attention to these things. He called in the Chargé d'Affaires, the U.S. Chargé, in order to kind of tell her off a little bit. I mean, the the foreign minister called her in in order to say, you know, you're engaging in foreign interference and your criticism is not welcome. So clearly Saeed is listening and is paying attention. But again, I don't think those statements, and I don't think Sharon said this, but I don't think those statements in and of themselves are sufficient. I, I do think they should continue those, but I also think shifting that assistance away from Saeed's government and towards the actors that actually support democracy would also speak volumes about whose side we're on. And it would show Saeed that he doesn't get rewarded for continuing to gauge in this autocratic behavior. Well, we will have to leave the conversation there for now. Sarah Yerkes, Sean Grewal, thank you for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcast, and look out for Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual weekly conversation about national security news that I co-host each week, along with my colleagues Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. Be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for our extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts, among other perks. This podcast was edited by Jen Pachahal, and our audio engineer was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag. A watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.